While the story continues this week, we've been following the story of God through Abraham and through Sarah. And finally, we have ourselves a baby, right? God's promise to them. And the whole thing revolves around this kid, this baby. But the story's got to move on. It can't stop with this baby. It has to keep going because if it doesn't, if it doesn't keep going, the promise is going to go to the grave with Abraham. Abraham is old, older than he was already. Now he's like 140 and his cloudy aged eyes are still looking forward to that promise. Before he dies, he wants to make sure the promise goes forward. So today we're going to be in Genesis 24 and the story does not revolve around a baby shockingly, or lack thereof, but actually around a wife or lack thereof, because Isaac doesn't have one and needs one pretty bad, a wife and a wedding. So Genesis 24, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Now, when I was a kid, I was one of those girls, the little girls, very typical, that loved weddings, loved, 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 loved weddings. And I would always play with my friends, like wedding, we would take turns being the bride. But because I was the pastor's kid, and I had been to a disproportionate number of weddings, for my age, I had all the vows memorized. And so I would be like the preacher, you know, and I would say, I stand up there and say the vows. Little did I know that one day, but anyway. Uh, but I didn't say them quite right. And so I would always say, do you take this woman to be your awfully wedded wife? <laughs> and uh, <laughs> honest mistake, I'm sure, honest mistake. Now, some girls don't do that. They don't think about that at all. And I don't know. Boys, do you like sketch your wedding tux? When you're 13 years old, do you do that? No, is that not a thing? Yeah, no, because uh, I totally did. Not the wedding tux, but the wedding dress. I had, uh, when I was growing up, I had the Barbie's wedding fashion plates. Did anybody have these? Vintage, yeah. Um, I wasn't allowed to play with Barbies. That's another story. But um, I was allowed to have this for whatever reason. And you could like mix and match the pieces and make these different kinds of dresses, right? Like the puffy sleeves with the straight bottom or the super fluffy bottom with like the strapless top. Like it was so fantastic. I felt like I was a New York fashion designer, frankly. I did. That was my calling, right? And so I spent an inordinate amount of time planning my wedding before I even had a groom lined up, right? The wedding was already set in stone, uh, like you do, you know. Uh, but today, Tommy and I, in one month, we will celebrate 11 years of being married. I know, that's very exciting. I know. And uh, I've come to the very, uh, frankly, it's a very annoying realization uh, in light of all the time I spent on that wedding stuff. Our wedding day was not the most important day of our marriage thus far. It wasn't, right? Uh, it was beautiful and it was meaningful, but it was just the beginning. It was like the gunshot to the start of the race, was it not? Uh, weddings, they're awesome and they're so much fun and they're beautiful, but frankly, they're kind of ordinary, right? Weddings happen every single day and the earth is not shifted. In fact, what shifts the earth, what shapes us is the daily faithfulness of marriage, is it not? The daily death to self in favor of the beloved. The wedding is just day one in a long obedience together. And so it's interesting that the author of Genesis takes the entire chapter 24 to talk about a wedding. A very specific wife search and a very specific wedding. You know, maybe the centerpieces were just really on point. Or maybe the song selection was just extraordinary. Or the food was just out of this world. But... I think really what it comes down to is this particular wedding held the key 
to the divine promise moving forward. Without a wife, without a wedding, this promise to Abraham would fizzle and die and Isaac would be a bachelor. The wedding matters to the promises of God. Because the question we have to ask is, is God going to continue to work toward fulfillment? Is he going to continue with his passionate purpose of restoring all of creation through the family of Abraham? Or will the promise go to the grave with Abraham? So let's read the word of the Lord this morning, 24, chapter 24, starting in verse 1. It says this, Now Abraham was old, well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his house, who had charge of all that he had, put your right hand under my thigh and I will make you swear by the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, that you will not get a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, among whom I live, but will go to my country and to my kindred and get a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land, um, but must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said, see to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my birth and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send an angel before you. You shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham as his master and swore to him concerning this matter. Needed a wife for Isaac and Asap, all right? And I think it's kind of interesting uh, that this whole passage is about Isaac and he virtually is not involved in any way, right? He's not even in the room. It would appear it's just Abraham and his servant. And the story is still centered on the old guy, right? 140 years old, right on Abraham. And that's okay because I want to talk to him about a second. We have witnessed Abraham's journey from a long, for a long ways now, right? We started in Genesis 12 when he was a mere 75, right? And uh, we witnessed this long, winding road with some, some significant speed bumps along the way. All the way back in chapter 12, God made that crazy promise, I'm going to make you a great nation, and you're going to have all this land and this credible offspring, and it was this beautiful promise, right? But does anybody remember how long Abraham actually had to wait for the fulfillment of that promise, for the boy to be born? Anybody remember? 25 years! That is a long stinking time to wait for a baby. And it wasn't a drama-free quarter of a century, for sure with deception and with violence and with outright disobedience and rebellion. Remember, Hagar and Ishmael got brought into the scene, complicating everything, thanks to Sarah's aggressive pursuit of a reliable plan B and Abraham's lack of courage to trust the promise. And so Abraham made his way forward for those 25 years in fits and starts, right? In moments of obedience and rebellion, moments of trust and moments of doubt. And overall, this family, frankly, has not embodied reflected God's way of living and being in the world. Rather, they have more adequately or accurately embodied failure and unfaithfulness, right? But then Mount Moriah happened. Ever heard of it? Now, we didn't talk about it last week because we wanted to focus in on Ishmael instead, but we have to stop at the foot of Mount Moriah, the mountain to which God had called Abraham. God had spoken, you know, Isaac was, I don't know, like 14-ish or so, when God spoke to Abraham again and said, Abraham, I want you to come up to the mountain and offer your only son Isaac as a sacrifice to me. 
which meant kill him, in case that wasn't clear to you. And we're all thinking, excuse me? Like this from the God who vowed that the promise to Abraham was going to live on through Isaac, the son you just asked me to kill. What? Oh, and on a side note, what kind of God are you that you would ask me to kill my son? Who does that? It is the most difficult of tests from God. Will Abraham trust me or will he continue to try to make his own future, right? To make his own way. And shockingly, frankly, in light of Abraham's track record of obedience, uh, Abraham obeyed. He climbed the mountain with his servants and with his beloved son and all of the supplies he needed for a burnt offering, except an animal. <laughs> and when Isaac, rather nervously, I imagine, said, hey, dad, uh, where's the lamb? Abraham answered, God himself will provide a sacrifice. But with no lamb in sight, Abraham kept going. Do you remember the story how he tied up Isaac and he laid him on the altar? And literally as he's about to knife the kid, an angel of the Lord steps in and says, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. And what do you know? Abraham looks up and there's a ram stuck in the bushes. God provides. God had provided a son. God tested and God provided again through a ram. And so by the time we get to chapter 24, Abraham is a man transformed. No longer is he throwing up questions to God about whether or not God's going to come through. No longer is he making subtle suggestions to God how to tweak the plan. Like, how about you bless this here, son? Remember that? No. Abraham is a man utterly transformed, converted, you might say. He has journeyed with God now for 65 years, walking with God in varying degrees of obedience. He has borne witness to God's extraordinary faithfulness in the face of the darkest of rebellion and disobedience. He has walked through that fiery furnace of trial and testing, and he has found God to be faithful, found God to be good and righteous provider. And Abraham has come out on the other side of this journey with this hard-fought, unshakable faith, a trust in a God who keeps his promises, even if it takes a long time. And so, as Abraham's servant is getting a little worried about his job assignment, namely go to this faraway land and bring back a wife for Isaac, preferably not by force, Abraham, totally unruffled, not the least bit stressed about the dilemma. He is at complete peace because he has found God to be trustworthy. God will provide. And that's how he can say with full confidence to his servant, the Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from that my land, who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring, I will give this land. He will send an angel before you. You shall take a wife for my son from there. And so to Abraham, this promise, it was a done deal. It was as good as done in his mind. That is how thoroughly, how deeply he trusted God. This is not Abraham making another plan B. This is Abraham walking in step with God, finally walking in trust, following the pan laid ahead in accordance with the promise. But the servant, 
that poor guy, he has to somehow convince a woman to move back to this foreign land to meet an unknown guy and marry him. He's not quite as convinced, right? But he obeys. Like, what else can he do? And so let's read on. Verse 10. Then the servant took ten of the master's camels and departed, taking all kinds of choice gifts from the master. And he set out and he went to Aram Naharim, to the city of Nahor. He made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water. It was towards evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. I am standing here by the spring of water and the daughters of the townspeople are coming out to draw water. Let the girl to whom I say, please offer your jar that I may drink, and who shall say drink and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. The poor guy, what a mission, right? Hey, go find my kid a wife. It's not like there's a shop for such things. It's not like you could put an ad out on Craigslist or do a Facebook shout out like, hey, meet me by the well if you're looking for a husband, right? <laughs> he just has to offer up this prayer to God and say, hey, show me the way. He did the only thing he knew to do, and that was go hang out where women hang out, right? Maybe you'll find one there. And that place is the well. In the Bible, you almost always encounter women hanging out at the well. It's a funny thing. But it's a woman's job to bring back the water. And so what better place to scout out the wife prospects than the well? But before the woman arrived, the servant prayed to God for success. Hey, God, God of the universe, you up there, could you please see me? Could you please hear me? We need a wife ASAP, so could you please show steadfast love to your servant, Abraham? Steadfast love. Hebrew word, chesed. Now, I know about three Hebrew words, and this is my favorite one, because you get to say chesed. It's very fun, unless you have stuff in your throat. Uh, I've mentioned it before, and it doesn't translate very well from the English, because chesed means not just steadfast love, and not just steadfast faithfulness, it means more like steadfast, unfailing love. And not just like some random, spontaneous act, but rather a characteristic attitude that can be relied upon. In JoJo's storybook Bible that we read every night, that Pastor Amy uses to teach our kids, the author describes God's hesed love as God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That sums it up, doesn't it? And the entire Bible is filled with these references to hesed, specifically God's hesed for the chosen people of Israel and ultimately for all of creation. Uh, like when Abraham's uh, descendants, the Israelites, do you remember the story how they got finally were released from Egypt and they got up to the Red Sea and they had no way forward, but God made a way through the sea and they're standing there watching the waters crash down on the Egyptians and they start singing and they start praising God. And they said, they declared to God, in your steadfast love, you led the people whom you redeemed. You guided them by your strength. That's, that's chesed, right? That steadfast love. And then in the story of Ruth, Naomi got a dead husband, dead sons, no prospects. She is teetering on despair and destruction until she discovers that God has led her daughter-in-law, Ruth, to Boaz, the only guy in the universe that can redeem them. And she declares, blessed be the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. 
And that kindness there, that word, again, is hesed. God's never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. I could give you about a thousand more examples, but I think you get it. Hesed is at the heart of God's character. His undying commitment is utterly faithful love. And so Abraham's servant calls upon God's character. This is who you say you are, God. You are the God of Chesed. You are the God who says he loves Abraham and all of us with this crazy, illogical, never stopping, never giving up, always and forever love. Now, please, could you demonstrate that crazy love by giving me success today? And what happens? Verse 15, before he had finished speaking, there was Rebecca. While the worrywart was still climbing off his camel and sitting down to rest at the well, God's answer was already en route. Before the words of his prayers had finished leaving his mouth, God's answer stood before him. I stumbled on this image a while back, and I think it captures the reality perfectly. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus? That little man, a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. And he climbed up in the sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. And he wanted to see Jesus, and he couldn't. And he was so, he was a man living in sin. He was a man rejected by everybody around him. He was a man so desperately in need of hesed, of that love and salvation. And so this is what I found. Long before Zacchaeus couldn't see Jesus, the tree had already been planted to meet his need. What if? What if we could trust God's hesed? so deeply that we too would trust that the tree would be there that the wife of isaac would be waiting for us how would our perspective our relationship with god change if we had eyes of faith like abraham with his hard-fought faith said the angel will make a way long before the need god had already provided before he had finished speaking, there was Rebecca. Let's read on. Before he had finished, finished speaking, there was Rebecca, who was born of Bethuel, son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, coming out with her water jar on her shoulder. Now the girl was very fair to look upon, a virgin whom no man had known. She went down to the spring, filled her jar, and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please, let me sip a little water from your jar. Drink, my lord, she said, and quickly lowered her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jars into the trough and ran again to the well to draw, and she drew for all ten members of his camels. Then the man gazed at her in silence to learn whether or not the Lord had made his journey successful. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold nose ring weighing half a shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten gold shekels. And he said, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? And she said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, we have plenty of straw and fodder and a place to spend the night. And the man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, blessed be the Lord. The God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast, hesed love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me on the way to the house of my master's kin. There she is. God's answer to prayer in the flesh. And not just any old girl. This is Abraham's 
great-niece. The servant is overcome with gratitude and the spirit of worship as he bears witness to God's hesed right before his eyes. Thanks be to God. He did not forsake his hesed, his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. He has led me on my way. And just like hesed, this idea of God's leading, of God's guidance, it's the word nacha, another cool Hebrew word because you get to, you know, uh, it permeates all of scripture. You know, think back to that verse that I had cited from Exodus, you know, when they first came out of Egypt and they saw the, the water crash down and they said, thanks be to God in your steadfast love, you have led the people you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength. It's the same word. You have led them. You have guided them. It's all over scripture. It's in Deuteronomy. It's in Joshua as they're taking over the land. It is in the book of the Kings as he guides the Kings to the right paths. It's in the Psalms constantly, even the prophets, God's faithful guidance. It's God's MO, right? It's how he works. And so, you know, we often tend to think of God's guidance in, in really dramatic terms, don't we? Maybe the pillar of fire that led Israel through the wilderness or the literal writing on the wall in the book of Daniel or the dramatic moves of the Holy Spirit in Acts, you know, when he would, the Spirit would physically prevent them from entering a part of the country, right? Drama to the extreme. And sometimes that would be nice, right? I'd take a pillar of fire every now and again. But God's faithful leading, his hesed-infused guidance is not always so dramatic, is it? It's often subtle, gentle, only recognizable to those with eyes like Abraham who can see the angel making a way. And perhaps the most uh, famous occurrence of this particular word, nacha, this lead, uh, captures this subtle yet profound leading of God. Hear the word. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in right paths for his name's sake. God leads. God guides, often in subtle, quiet, unobtrusive ways. But it's who he is, a God who leads. But do we have the eyes of faith to see as Abraham did. And Abraham's faith was ultimately rewarded, was it not? The servant goes back with Rebecca, back to meet the family and explain the mission, to explain God's hesed, God's faithful love towards Abraham in guiding him to that exact spot at that exact moment. And he says, before I had even finished praying, God had provided. Now the question is, will they go along with God's guiding hand? That is such the annoying thing about God, frankly is that he doesn't force or coerce us in any way, does he? Like he will lead and he will guide, but we could still say no. But thankfully, Abraham's family responds to the guiding hand of the Lord and they agree to send Rebecca away to marry Isaac. And he's so excited, he's so eager, he says, awesome, we're leaving tomorrow. And Rebecca's mom is like, uh-uh. She says, I don't think so, give us 10 days. And so he said, no, I really, you can't stop me. Please let me go. And they said, fine, let's ask Rebecca. Crazy, you know, ask her, right? Ask her opinion. Um, I imagine Rebecca 
this whole time as be, having stand off to the side. She has virtually no voice culturally to say about you know, what she would like to happen. But she's been watching. She has encountered this guy. She observed his faithful, loyal service to Abraham. She has observed his worship of God. And she has heard the story of God's chesed to Abraham. And she says, okay. I too sense the guiding hand of God. And they agree, and she leaves the next day. And soon after, they arrive back at Abraham's new homeland where Isaac is waiting, and Isaac and Rebekah are wed. And the promise continues on intact. The story moves onward. 67 verses it took to get Isaac a wife. God created the universe in fewer verses. 31, in fact. 67 verses that, frankly, are pretty ordinary. There's no pillar of fire. There is no glowing hand on the wall. There is no sea blown apart by the breath of God. And even though Abraham does sign an angel, nobody sees it, right? So ordinary. Ordinary, but holy. Holy as it is filled with the guiding hand of God, as God demonstrates his hesed, his never stopping, never giving up, all unbreaking, always and forever love to Abraham once again. So what is the good news? The good news in this passage is not flashy, it is not loud, but it is so very good. The good news declared by this lengthy wedding tale is simple. God loves with hesed, completely apart from any merit on our part. God loves with the never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. Amen. God loves us with hesed. But God is also always leading and guiding. If only we have the eyes of faith to see. Faith that has been hard fought and hard won through a long obedience. God leads. And finally, God always provides exactly what we need to walk in obedience to him. Whether it's a baby, whether it's a ram in the bushes, or whether it's a wife at the well, God provides. And the most amazing thing of all about this God that he's faithfully loving and faithfully guiding this faithfully providing God calls us to walk with him to actually play a part in this redemptive mission in the world to actually partner with God through our responsive obedience to his loving leading like the servant journeying toward the well with the job to do because we too have a job to do to live out God's way of being in the world, to participate in God's restorative, redemptive mission as we too seek restoration and reconciliation. Jack, my son, has a new obsession. It's the broom. It's very exciting. It's two and a half times bigger than him, but that does not stop him. And so whenever I have something I actually need to get done, like make dinner or something, I give him the broom and I tell him to sweep up for me. Uh, and he does with reckless abandon, right? And what he lacks in skill, he makes up for it in enthusiasm. He does. And frankly, he's terrible at it. Like, he's really terrible. He's the worst sweeper ever. But it's not a real assignment, you know? He's 15 months. Like, 
Is it a real chore? Do I actually expect him to clean the floor? No, it's busy work to keep him from accidentally offing himself by supermaning it down the stairs while I make dinner. It's busy work to save his life. But that is not God's way with us, giving us silly little tasks to keep us busy on earth, to keep us out of trouble, but not really expecting anything of us. No, God has a real part for us to play in his mission of redemption. And like the servant, there are real journeys ahead of us. There are real decisions. There are real encounters with real people who need to know God's hesed. Real challenges where we have to decide, am I going to trust the hesed of God? Am I going to follow God's guiding hand? Am I going to trust God's provision? Will we trust that before the prayers are even out of our mouths, God will have already acted to meet our need. We can trust him because he is so very, very good. Your mercy, your chesed, your undying, unfailing love lasts forever. Your never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love, you have spoken it over us. And Lord, we receive. We receive. May that transformative, faithful love change us. And may we, may we be faithful in response. May we follow your faithful, chesed-infused guidance, trusting that before the words are out of our mouth, you have made a way. May we trust that you provide. And may these things that we are learning about your character, about your story, may it not just be knowledge in our head, but may it transform us from the inside out as we learn who you are, that you can be trusted. May we walk in full trust and faith, knowing that you have made a way. And may we obey not just in fits and starts, but may we obey faithfully as your spirit empowers us to do so. We ask it all in the name of your son and by the power of the spirit. Amen. Beloved, would you extend your hands to receive the benediction? Beloved, Christ Church, may you go from this place and walk in full trust of God's chesed, of his loving, faithful guidance and his promise to provide. Before the words are out of your mouth, God has acted to meet your need. Go in action and go in peace.